Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Oh, thank you so much, Dennis, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Metastatic Breast Cancer Treatment Updates. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and made possible through an independent grant from Merck and Company, Inc. I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. And um, I also want to acknowledge that we have many people on this call today. We have over 387 participants, so 387 people from all of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban communities, and frontier communities as well. Now, we also have a number of countries participating today. I'm just going to name the countries, Bangladesh, Belgium, Canada, Colombia, um, East Africa, India, Iraq, Ireland, Nigeria, South Africa, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. It is actually a global call, not a bit of a, it's a it is a global call as well. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And my first speaker is Dr. Generosa Grana. Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper, the Cooper Health System, Professor of Medicine at Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And Dr. Grana will be addressing overview of metastatic breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, biomarkers, diagnostic testing, and technologies, why they are important in informing treatment decisions for metastatic breast cancer, current standard of care, and new treatment approaches. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grana. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's begin. Metastatic breast cancer, what is it? It's a disease that has spread beyond the breast and local lymphatics to areas such as bone, lymph nodes in the chest or elsewhere, lung, liver, brain, or other less common sites. The majority of women in the United States have had a prior diagnosis of breast cancer, and this is a reoccurrence. They go on to develop metastatic disease. Therefore, they already have a cancer team that's guiding them through the diagnosis and the workup. Some 10 to 15% of patients present with metastatic disease as their first diagnosis. We call it de novo, and they need to pull together a care team. In other countries, the percentage of women that present with metastatic disease is significantly higher. How is it diagnosed? With signs and symptoms of disease. Disease in the breast or enlarged lymph nodes or symptoms of disease, shortness of breath, abdominal pain, bone pain, headache, or other neurologic symptoms, or lab abnormalities, a high calcium, or an alkaline phosphatase, or liver function abnormalities, or finally, imaging abnormalities, oftentimes a scan that is done for something else uh, for another reason shows an abnormality that then leads to a workup. What is the appropriate workup uh, for metastatic breast cancer? It entails making a diagnosis, assessing the extent of disease, and then determining a treatment plan. It begins with a biopsy, a biopsy ideally of a distant site if possible, 
to prove that it is breast cancer and not another malignancy such as lung cancer or multiple myeloma in bone or colon cancer metastatic to liver or even a benign condition. So a biopsy is really critical. Second, uh, repeating the ER... Again, repeating the ER, PR, her to new status as they can change in the process of developing metastatic disease. In 20% of cases, there can be a change in the markers to positive or negative. So it's really important that this is done. And third, uh, to get a tissue sample for more sophisticated testing that can aid in the treatment planning or preparing a patient for a clinical trial. We call this genomic profiling, next generation sequencing. Some people call it precision medicine. It is very useful in certain types of breast cancer, especially triple negative breast cancer or hormone positive breast cancer, less useful in her 2 positive disease as we have so many drugs available to treat that particular group. Next generation sequencing is taking a piece of tissue uh, analyzing it and looking for genetic markers that can be used to guide treatment. These can be targets for drug therapy as well as targets for potential clinical trial participation. So this is very important. Some of you may have heard about Foundation One, CARES. Some institutions do their own next-generation sequencing. And then there's this option of liquid biopsies uh, when there's not sufficient tissue uh, from the biopsy, you can actually send the blood test that's based on circulating tumor DNA, and it can give you very similar information. So this kind of workup is very important. What's next? Staging studies uh, to assess the extent of disease. These are all kinds of imaging studies to give us a sense of how extensive is the disease, and that can be used to make a plan. CAT scans, bone scans, or PET scans uh, are used to assess extent of disease. Some insurers uh, limit the use of a PET scan for inconclusive other imaging. Uh, we sometimes do MRI of the brain if a patient has symptoms. Always do labs to assess organ function. Look at tumor markers, proteins that are shed by the tumor into the bloodstream that if elevated can be followed to assess response or lack of it to a particular therapy. Two particularly common markers are CA199 and CA153, I'm sorry, CA2729, not CA199, CA2729 uh, or CA153, and those are particularly useful in breast cancer. We also look uh, sometimes at circulating tumor cells. This is being evaluated as a useful tool to assess or predict response. It is by no means standard of care yet. And I would argue that any woman diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer should have germline genetic testing, looking for genetic abnormalities in genes such as BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, Lynch, or other genes, because if a mutation is present, it has implications for the family, but it also potentially has implications for your treatment. We have a drug called Limparza, which is a PARP inhibitor that is useful in certain hereditary types of breast cancer. So again, this concept of genetic testing is very useful. Now, let's move on to the treatment of metastatic breast cancer. It depends on, number one, the specific type of cancer, and that gets at the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2-NU, and I'm going to come back to that. 
Number two, it depends on the extent of disease or what we call disease burden. Number three, it depends on the patient's performance status, functioning, how healthy are they, and what other health conditions do they have or what some oncologists call comorbidities. What other illnesses, health problems do you have? And it always, always depends on the patient's wishes and goals of care. That has to be paramount as we're planning your treatment. So first, let's stop and talk about the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 new proteins and how they're used. The estrogen and progesterone proteins are found in the nucleus of the cell. They're present uh, and are markers of estrogen responsiveness. We have drugs such as tamoxifen, which bind to the estrogen receptor and block its action. It can be used in premenopausal or postmenopausal women. We have drugs called aromatase inhibitors. Uh, we have uh, arimidex, letrozole, aromasin uh, that uh, actually block estrogen production only in postmenopausal women. We have a drug called fulvestrant called Assurd, which also binds and downregulates the estrogen receptor. It's an injectable agent. It can be used in postmenopausal women. A lot of research is going on looking at oral forms of fulvestrant, and you'll hear more about that later. Uh, these drugs are promising. And in young premenopausal women, you may be urged to suppress ovarian function with agents such as Lupron or Zolodex in addition to doing other endocrine therapy. So the estrogen receptor is a target of drugs that can be uh, used to block it. What about the HER2 new protein? It's a protein found on the surface of a cancer cell, which can be a target for drugs such as uh, trastuzumab or Herceptin and similar HER2 new targeted agents. HER2 new testing is really critical in this day and age. There are two forms of testing that are available. One is immunohistochemical staining, and the other one is fluorescent in situ hybridization. And that will determine whether a patient is positive or negative for that protein. Recent interest has arisen in something called HER2 low. Those are women that traditionally we considered negative for HER2 new protein. They have one plus or two plus protein levels on the surface of their cells. But now these patients may benefit from a relatively new drug called NHER2. So again, uh, our, our field is moving rather rapidly from just being estrogen positive, HER2 new positive to being HER2 new low. So now let's talk about the drugs that are available to treat metastatic breast cancer. The most commonly used are endocrine agents, which block the estrogen receptor. I mentioned tamoxifen, aromatase inhibitors, fulvestrant, lupron, uh, zolodex. Uh, then there are a group of drugs which are considered adjuncts that are used in combination with these endocrine agents. There's a group of these drugs called CDK46 inhibitors, You've heard of ribocyclib or Kiskali, palbocyclib or Ibrans, and abemocyclib or Verzenio. Uh, those drugs have dramatically improved the outcome for women with metastatic disease. Another group of adjunct drugs are something called mTOR inhibitors. Affinitor is such a drug. And the third of what I consider adjunct is a drug called the PI3 kinase inhibitor called Picray that has been on the market for about a year. And that drug is for patients whose next-generation sequencing shows that they have a mutation in that protein called PI3 kinase. So again, we have endocrine agents, adjuncts that we add to endocrine agents, and then we move on to standard chemotherapy. 
Standard chemotherapy tends to be used alone, can be used in combination. The only agent that's oral is a drug called capecitabine or Zolota, and we have many that are intravenous. Uh, they fall into categories such as taxanes, abraxane, taxol, taxotir, anthracyclines called adriamycin, epirubicin, doxol, and then drugs such as halibin, ixabepilone, carboplatinum, etc. We then have a group of drugs called the HER2 new targeted agents, and this has been probably the most exciting part of breast cancer in many years. It started with Herceptin and its development, then followed with Pergetta, Cadzilla, uh, Ticurb, Noratinib, and HER2. Uh, again, a whole panoply of drugs that can be used alone, but also in combination with chemotherapy, and they've really converted HER2 new positive disease into a highly treatable disease. There is immunotherapy, agents such as pembrolizumab and others that are appropriate for certain subsets of breast cancer, primarily triple negative, or cancers that have certain markers, uh, such as uh, PDL1 mutations or other factors. We have some novel chemotherapy conjugates, a drug called sasituzumab gabatecan or uh, trotl which is used in triple negative breast cancer, uh, and, and others that are evolving. We also, in addition to endocrine therapy, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and her 2 therapy, have options such as liver-directed therapy with drugs such as Y90. It's an injectable radioisotope. And we also have bone-targeted agents that can be used. So again, we are really in a great place in terms of drugs available to us. So what is the current state? How do you select treatment for the individual patient? Again, it depends on the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 new status, and other markers identified in that more sophisticated testing that I mentioned, such as PI3 kinase, a PDL1, tumor mutation burden, etc. It depends on the BRCA1 and 2 testing to identify if Limparza is an available option. It's dependent on the disease burden, or what some people call visceral crisis. Patients with uh, visceral crisis go on to chemotherapy immediately. We don't often move those patients towards endocrine agents. And it also depends on the patient's performance status and the patient's goals. I have some patients that say they don't want to lose their hair. I have some patients that say they want absolute oral agents and not intravenous. Uh, the key is understanding that this is often a highly treatable, though often incurable disease, and the patient is likely to go through many, many rounds of available drugs for their disease. So again, uh, it is important that you keep working with your team to identify what's right for you at that time. I would say that clinical trials are always a first choice when available. It's a great way to get access to novel agents and novel combinations. The general principles in, in cancer uh, treatment are, if a cancer is hormone responsive, begin with a hormonal therapy approach, again, unless a patient has very aggressive disease at presentation. If a cancer is HER2-new positive, begin with Herceptin or Herceptin-Progetta combinations, and they can be with endocrine agents or with chemotherapy, unless there is a cardiac issue that prevents that. And if a cancer is triple negative, a chemotherapy, a chemo conjugate such as trotl or immunotherapy is an option. And now, recently, we've had this novel drug called Inhertu that we are using in some of those patients. 
The key is that most patients will be candidates for multiple lines of systemic therapy to palliate their cancer, to keep it under control. And at each point, as we move through this journey of, of selecting treatments, at each point, clinicians need to assess whether it's right to continue, what the benefits of additional treatment, what the patient wants, what the patient's health dictates, and always, always the patient's preference. Uh, so uh, I think we live in a world of many options and communication between the patient and their treating team are the critical factors. And I'll stop there, and we'll take questions later. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grana. That was just really a wonderful, wonderful presentation, stellar, and actually also a wonderful way to start the program. So thank you so much. And I know the big questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Ada Wax. And Dr. Wax is um, Associate Director of Clinical Research, Staff Physician, Breast Medical Oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Wax will be addressing updates on clinical trials, how clinical trials increase your treatment options, um, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain, communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns, and guidelines for preparing for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, list of questions, and open notes, discussion, or the new 2021 CARES Act. Um, it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wax. Thank you so much, Dr. Metzner. Thank you, everybody, for having me today. Um, yeah, my name is Ada, Dr. Ada Wack. I'm a breast oncologist at Dana-Farber. And um, Dr. Grana, I thought, did an, a, a wonderful job sort of summarizing all of the exciting agents that are already available to women with metastatic breast cancer. And so what I'm hoping to do for the second portion of the presentation today is to help you understand a little bit more about the really recent exciting developments in metastatic um, breast cancer treatment, and then, you know, what's coming down the pike, what to look forward to, and what we're hopeful about um, in the next, you know, 6, 12 months and beyond. Um, so first, you know, as a just a general statement and introduction, because I am going to talk a lot about recent clinical trial results and upcoming clinical trial results, um, I did definitely want to stress, as Dr. Grana already mentioned, that you know, of course, we as oncologists, we always advocate uh, for and look for clinical trial opportunities for our patients with metastatic breast cancer. Um, and it, participating in a clinical trial is a wonderful way um, to improve, you know, your own treatment list of treatment options, elongate that list, um, and also, you know, an important way to um, help us as a medical, as a breast oncology community move knowledge forward and, you know, do a service for women who are going to come after you to help us treat them in a better, um, you know, more individualized and more effective way. Um, one thing that I always just like to say in general about clinical trials, and hopefully you'll hear this come through in some of the different trials that I'll discuss in the next couple of minutes, is that I think a lot of times um, patients feel like if their doctor starts to talk to them about a clinical trial, you know, that, that that should in some way be upsetting or that that's a sign that, 
you know, we're sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel and we've exhausted the, the typical treatment options. So now we have to think about, you know, treatments that really haven't been well tested or things like that. Um, and I certainly know that many of my patients, that's their, you know, that's their knee-jerk reaction and their association when we first talk about clinical trials. But what I always like to tell patients, and I hope give you some reassurance and excitement about clinical trial participation, is that really in most cases that couldn't be farther from the truth. You know, we are not just um, wanting uh, women to participate in clinical trials when they don't have any other options, but rather we want to improve our treatments, you know, from the minute of your diagnosis. We don't, we want to do clinical trials so you never have to get to later options. Um, and so, you know, we want to start thinking about and designing clinical trials to figure out what's the best first treatment, what's the best second treatment. And even though we have, you know, wonderful standards already, as Dr. Grana outlined, we can always do better for our patients with metastatic breast cancer. Um, and the way that we do better is by uh, performing clinical trials, uh, and the most important participate th uh, participant there is our patients. So it's not something, you know, I always feel like it's actually something to be excited about and, and a source of optimism when your doctor talks to you about participating on a trial. Certainly not a reason to feel, um, you know, like you've run out of options. It's just a way to um, prolong the already uh, very um, uh, excellent and exciting list of options that exist. So that's a, a general statement about clinical trials, and you know I'm very biased, certainly, but I think it's a um, I think it's a wonderful way to participate in moving care forward and and improving it. Um, so uh, I, I wanted to talk in general about again sort of the exciting recent updates and updates to come in metastatic breast cancer treatments, and I'll break the discussion down mostly in terms of the three different subtypes of breast cancer that Dr. Grana already outlined. So the first subtype are estrogen-driven breast cancers. Uh, the second subtype are HER2-positive breast cancers, and the third subtype are triple-negative breast cancers. Before I go into those three subtypes, though, just to mention that, as Dr. Grana highlighted, we actually have a really exciting uh, sort of a fourth subtype or just a new subtype of breast cancer that we need to think about now for our metastatic patients, which is called HER2-low breast cancer. So these are patients who aren't HER2 positive. You know, they, they would have previously been told by their doctors for these, you know, number of years that they have actually HER2 negative breast cancer. But now we know that if you have a breast cancer that's not quite HER2 positive, but not fully HER2 negative, you can actually have a cancer that falls into sort of an in-between category called HER2 low. And, and this is not uncommon. This is actually more than half of breast cancers that fall into the HER2 low category. So it's important um, definitely to be asking your oncologist at this point whether you have HER2 low breast cancer. You may not have talked to them about that label before because the label uh, really didn't matter up until just a couple months ago. And the reason that the label HER2-low um, now matters is that we know that the drug and HER2 that Dr. Grana talked about, um, which is a HER2-targeted antibody drug conjugate, it's called trastuzumab deruxtecan or HER2, we know that that drug helps women 
uh, do better with treatment and live longer with their breast cancer when they're in this HER2 low category. And so, and HER2 was actually the most recent uh, drug with a new FDA approval um, in breast cancer uh, back just two months ago at the beginning of August, and HER2 was approved by the FDA for patients here in the United States who have a HER2 low metastatic breast cancer. So that's a, a very you know, new, exciting, important label to be thinking about in your journey with metastatic breast cancer. Um, and I'm sure you know, that many of your doctors will be talking to you about it. It's certainly very promising to have this new uh, sort of subcategory and this new treatment that we know works so well there. So that's been very exciting and isn't going to fall into one of these three um, subcategories that I'll talk about. So in terms of the three um, sort of more historical subtypes of breast cancer uh, that we think about, so let me start with metastatic estrogen-driven or ER-positive, hormone receptor-positive uh, breast cancer. Uh, as uh, Dr. Grana talked about, one of the uh, classes of agents that has been exciting and is being explored in this type of breast cancer um, are what's called the oral SIRS. Third stands for selective estrogen receptor degrader. Basically, it's a, it's a type of an anti-estrogen mechanism. And we have a drug named Fulvestrin or Fazlodex that works by the same mechanism, but it's an injection. Um, and so there's been a lot of interest in the past uh, number of years to develop a drug like Fulvestrin that can be taken orally because most patients find it easier to take a pill and not have to come into the clinic to get a shot. Um, you know, once a month or so. So uh, these oral thirds uh, are being developed. One of them, named Elasestrant, um, had a paper that was recently published about it and had some promising um, effectiveness data for women with a metastatic ER-positive breast cancer. Um, and there are others that are in the pipeline as well. And there are drugs that potentially seem to work particularly well in women who have um, an ESR1 mutation, uh, and that's a mutation in the estrogen receptor that might make a cancer become resistant to some other types of anti-estrogen treatments, but might um, mean that that patient is a good candidate for an oral third, like estrogen or something else. Um, so that's, a, that's a, an exciting class of drugs to be on the lookout for. Um, and then another uh, exciting result recently in ER-positive uh, breast cancer came from a clinical trial called Tropics O2, um, and this is a result that was actually just presented uh, within the last four weeks or so at a conference in Europe, um, where it was shown that the drug Tridelzy, which is also called Sasituzumab Gopatikan, this has a very long, annoying name, but this drug Tridelzy, um, which is an antibody drug conjugate that we use commonly in triple negative breast cancer, um, we just uh, saw these very promising and exciting results about a month or so ago, showing us that this drug also works well um, in patients with estrogen-driven ER-positive metastatic breast cancer. Um, and so that was, you know, an exciting result that uh, shows us that a drug that we've, again, known at profile well and known its activity very well for patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer seems to also work well for patients with metastatic ER positive breast cancer. So that was a really exciting result. Um, that result was so recent that, you know, we don't have an FDA approval uh, yet for that drug. Um, but it's definitely one to, to look out for and has looked very, uh, very promising. 
so that's particularly exciting. In the uh, subtype of triple negative breast cancer, which makes up about 10% of breast cancers overall, um, there's been, again, a lot of interest in this class of drugs called antibody drug conjugates, like um, Tridelvi or Sasituzumab dobtecan or HER2, Trastuzumab Durextecan. Um, those are antibody drug conjugates that have looked exciting in triple negative breast cancer. Um, and there are many other sort of novel antibody drug conjugates that are being investigated in triple negative breast cancer. Um, the drug Tridelvi right now we use in patients who have metastatic triple negative breast cancer who have already received some other treatments, usually one or two or more um, previous treatments. And so some of the exciting research that's going on right now is looking at whether Tridelvi, which has looked so good and so active um, and beneficial for our patients who have metastatic triple negative breast cancer and have already received a couple of treatments, whether Tridelvi is actually going to work just as well uh, or better than our current standards for women who are just getting their very first treatment for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And I'm certainly very hopeful about that. Um, it's a drug that has really uh, helped a lot of women with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And there's a lot of promise, I think, if we use it um, earlier on, you know, potentially for women as their very first treatment when they're diagnosed with a metastatic triple negative breast cancer. It's being looked at um, both by itself um, as the first treatment for women with metastatic triple negative breast cancer and in combination with an immunotherapy drug um, for women with metastatic triple negative breast cancer uh, whose cancer is pdl one positive, which is about 40% of women with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. So we don't have those results yet, but in the coming years, it will be very exciting to see if we can move um, Tridelvia or Sasituzumab goatecan into the um, sort of earlier treatment setting uh, for those women and potentially help them even more um, with this really active drug. Um, and then thirdly, the final subtype of breast cancer that we always uh, think about is HER2-positive breast cancer, which makes up about 20% of breast cancers overall. Um, and here, as Dr. Grant was outlining, there's been an enormous amount of progress made in the last five years or so, and even accelerating just over the last year or so um, in terms of the sort of menu of drug options that we know have effectiveness here. Um, so it's been a really exciting couple of years in her two positive metastatic breast cancer. Um, the, I would say, you know, most exciting somewhat newcomer in this space has been the drug NHER2 or trastuzumab can. That's, again, the drug that we also know works in HER2 low metastatic breast cancer, but was originally developed in HER2 positive metastatic breast cancer, where it also has excellent effectiveness. Um, recently, earlier in 2022, um, trastuzumab or in HER2 was established as the standard um, second treatment for women with a metastatic HER2 positive breast cancer. And when I say second treatment, I mean we use a, a first uh, type of treatment and keep a woman on that for as long as it's working. But then when we need to switch to her second treatment, um, we uh, now know that the best option for many women in that case is to switch to NHER2 or trastuzumab to cancer. So that was an exciting result earlier this year. 
there's now um, a big clinical trial that's going on that's asking if the NHER2 drug, which has been so effective for women uh, with metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer, should actually be the very first treatment that those women um, receive when they uh, are treated for metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer. So those results um, will come out in a couple of years and will be interesting for helping us understand how to use NHER2 in that population. Um, there's uh, also been a lot of excitement around the drug tucatinib um, or tucaiza for women with HER2-positive metastatic breast cancer. Um, and tucaiza has looked particularly exciting and effective for um, patients who have HER2-positive metastatic uh, breast cancer and brain metastases. There's been a very exciting effectiveness for tucaiza in that population. Um, and it's being investigated as a component of a bunch of different regimens, uh, both for patients who have brain metastases with the HER2-positive breast cancer uh, and who don't have brain metastases. So I think we'll see exciting um, new regimens also around this drug Tukaisa in the years to come. It's already a standard treatment that we can use, but I think that it's, um, it's the number of patients and the settings, the, you know, the ways and the situations in which we use it will expand even further, um, especially for patients with metastatic HER2-positive breast cancer uh, and brain metastases. So uh, those were the, the sort of very quick um, but hopefully um, exciting updates into where treatment has gone recently and is going in the future uh, for metastatic breast cancer patients. Um, I wanted to end with one uh, thought about how we should, how we partner with patients and how we should best manage, you know, the unavoidable number of symptoms that come up for patients with metastatic breast cancer. And, you know, symptoms can arise um, both because of the cancer itself, which could affect you know, bones or liver, any number of different places in the body that may cause symptoms like uh, pain or cough or things like that. Um, and then, you know, symptoms also arise because unfortunately all of our drugs, even if they're effective, they, they virtually always come with some number of side effects. Um, and we know that that side effect burden will be different for different patients, but is enormously um, impactful in terms of patient's day-to-day -day quality of life. Um, and, you know, I think that the, there's so many, you know, endless things that could be said about how we manage symptoms day-to-day um, -day with alongside our patients. But to highlight two things, uh, you know, I think what Dr. Grana said is, is really the most important bottom line, which is that our communication with our patients, your communication with your care team, letting them know how you're feeling, let them, letting them know what you're um, you know, what your concerns are and what your questions are is really of the paramount importance. Um, and it's always good to communicate that yourself and or to have family members um, or friends, you know, whoever your loved ones and, and support uh, people are, um, be your sort of advocates and communicators in that as well. And then number two, I think that it's always um, beneficial to have the assistance of symptom management specialists which are usually called palliative care specialists. Um, they can 
be very, very helpful and have all sorts of uh, important insights into symptom management for patients with metastatic breast cancer, any number of things from pain to nausea um, to, you know, anxiety and emotional upheaval that comes with a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. Obviously, those are things that your medical oncologist is going to try to address as well, but I always encourage um, my patients and any patients to bring a palliative care or a symptom management specialist onto the team to help, you know, with a particular focus on symptom management and, uh, and quality of life day to day. So with that, I'll wrap up. I thank you very much for having me today, and I'm very happy, along with Dr. Garner, to take any questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wax. That was really a wonderful presentation, stellar, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Samantha Fortune, Sam Fortune, and she's an oncology social worker, and she's our Women's Cancers Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. And Ms. Fortune will be addressing Cancer Care's free programs and services, and we'll give you information about our helpline and website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fortune. Thank you, Dr. Messner. Um, as Dr. Messner mentioned, my name is Sam Fortune, and I am the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator, as well as an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling, support group, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. At my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and family impacted by cancer diagnosis, as well as develop programs and initiatives for our women's cancer department. Individuals diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer may choose to supplement existing social networks by choosing a support group or engaging in counseling. Many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations offer supportive services as well. Being a member of a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others who are going through similar experiences as you are, obtain information, and provide support, support I should say. Currently, Cancer Care offers specific metastatic breast cancer support groups online. The Metastatic Breast Cancer Online Support Group aims to reduce feelings of loneliness and anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of hope and empowerment, and provide practical information about the treatment and resources, as well as address ways to communicate with one's medical teams and loved ones. Um, as mentioned earlier, it's very important to express like your feelings about whatever you're going through with everyone. Um, our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. These groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and group members must register to join. You can re register for these support groups through our website at cancercare.org by selecting our services, then support groups. After completing the registration process on our website, members can participate by posting in the support groups 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Individuals also may experience some practical and financial concerns throughout their treatment. Please note that if you are encountering such financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care's Resource Navigation offers a short-term strengths-based approach service to patients and caregivers affected by cancer nationally. A trained specialist will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you're interested in learning more about um, the supportive services Cancer Care offers, I would encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis impacts an individual as well as their loved ones. 
We're here to offer you support throughout this experience and look forward to hearing from you. Um, it's been a very, such a pleasure to speak on this program today. Thank you guys for your attention and the, giving me the opportunity to speak about our services. Um, I will now turn the program back to Dr. Mister. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so much, Ms. Fortune. That was wonderful, Estella, and a wonderful resource for everyone on the call today. We're going to move on, and we now have time for questions from all of our, to all of our participants. So I'm going to ask Dennis to tell you how to queue up for questions or take, take as many of your questions as possible. Dennis. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from our participants. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. So we have a question um, for Dr. Wax. Um, ha um, how has the CARES Act of 2021 affected people by getting their pathology reports results put into my chart online, often before the doctor has spoken with the patient about the interpretation of the report. There also was something called open notes before that. So how is that, um, what do you recommend patients do because they often get reports before they really, they come in the middle of the night or weekends when they may not be able to reach someone? Yeah, you know, I think that that's a wonderful, um, question and it's a wonderful topic that certainly bears discussion. I think, you know, that honestly, I, I think that it's a good thing that all of patients' information and medical records be available to patients. It's your medical record. The, you know, the information may be empowering to you um, and, and it's really information about you that you should absolutely have the power to, to see all of it. So I, I fully support that. Um, but on the flip side, the fact that all of that information is available to patients in absolutely real time at this point brings up this very frequent issue that the patients may see the results um, before, you know, by hours or days before the doctor sees the results or before the doctor is able to go over it with the patient, which can obviously, you know, unavoidably produce um, anxiety and questions. Um, for patients. So, you know, what I encourage patients to do, I think little by little, we're all sort of learning that this is the, the new normal and the way that it's going to be for all, essentially all results at all times. So, you know, I try to be upfront and get out ahead of that and talking to patients about it and say, you know, you uh, might want to be thoughtful about when that message, you know, pops up in your email or your in-basket that a result's available. Um, be thoughtful about if it's something that you want to look at without, um, without your doctor's guidance, especially, you know, if it's going to be a Friday at 6 p.m. and you know you're not going to be able to ask any questions about it before um, Monday morning or whatever. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's something to talk to patients about and help them have a little preparation for making a conscious decision about whether it's the right thing for them uh, personally to look at the results uh, ahead of when they'll be able to speak with their doctor about them. So that's one thing. You know, I, I don't think that it is the right thing for all patients, but patients can certainly make that decision for themselves. And number two, I think it's also something for patients and physicians and care teams to be aware of when they figure out how they're scheduling their visits. You know, you, you might want to make sure um, that you have a visit within 24 hours of a CT scan or 48 hours of a CT scan or whatever instead of five days or seven days later if possible um, if you know that as a patient you're going to 
be able to see and, you know, maybe be looking at the results of that and not have a chance to discuss it with your doctor until the visit, then, you know, it might be uncomfortable if you have to wait five days. So that's a reason to try to schedule things a little closer together. Or it might be uncomfortable if you get your scan on a Friday and you know you're going to have to look at the results on Friday and then sort of wait until Monday to, to go through them with somebody. So, you know, I think it's also something to be thoughtful about just in the timing of, of follow-up visits and testing. Excellent. Thank you. And a question that, thank you, and that's an important question, and thank you so much for that wonderful answer. And Dr. Um, Grana, a question for you. Is it true um, one should not eat grapefruit and other citrus if taking Verzenzio? There are Verzenio, uh, I'm assuming is the drug that they're mentioning. There are a whole host of interactions with uh, the CDK4-6 inhibitors. Um, and part of the process of getting a patient ready for those drugs, and that is the case for Kiskali and, and many other drugs, um, part of the process of getting a patient ready is having the nurse oftentimes or sometimes a pharmacist spend time with the patient educating them about dietary restrictions um, because it does interfere. These drugs do interfere with the metabolism of the drug. So I think it's critical uh, that you not only learn how to manage the side effects. So for Verzenio, it's particularly important that you learn how to manage diarrhea because many patients have it. And so you need to have drugs available, Imodium, uh, Loperamide, uh, and know how to use them, know when to call your team because you don't want to risk getting dehydrated. But in addition, really focusing on some of these dietary restrictions. Yes. Thank you. And um, a question for, um, for Dr. Wax. I'm a stage four hormone positive, HER2 positive patient. I cannot tolerate Ibrons. Um, which is all my oncologist has offered, um, um, both in terms of fatigue and neuropathy. Um, are there other options? Um, and, of course, I'm taking letrozole as well. And, again, because this is a particular individual question, um, Dr. Wax, if you could just answer this in a general way in terms of um, any general guidelines that you can give not only to this patient but other patients who might be having difficulty tolerating a particular treatment. Absolutely. Thank you. Dr. Messner, I'm sorry, can you just repeat what was the drug that the patient was having trouble tolerating? Uh, she couldn't tolerate eye brands. Oh, eye brands? Eye brands. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I absolutely agree that this will come up, you know, for women with all um, or patients with all subtypes of metastatic breast cancer, that there will be a drug or drugs that just for whatever reason um, don't, don't agree with you in terms of the side effects. So, you know, in general, um, things that you can do in that situation, one is to try to do a, a reduction of the dose. Um, of the drug or change the schedule of the drug. Um, so, you know, if it's a drug that uh, the standard dose of vibrance is 125 milligrams, you can see if you can lower down to 100 milligrams, for example, for a drug that you're supposed to take, like Ibrance, for three weeks on and one week off. You can see if you can take it for two weeks on and one week off. So, you know, if the first uh, attempt at taking a drug doesn't work, then often there are ways that we can reduce the dose or change the schedule to try to make it more tolerable. Um, if that doesn't work, and sometimes it absolutely doesn't, then you can talk to your doctor about, you know, are there like sort of cousin drugs, like other drugs that are in 
the same class um, where they might be similar in mechanism and might get similar effectiveness out of them, but they could have a different side effect profile. Um, and so, you know, that is the case for a drug like Idrans or palbocyclib. There are two other drugs in the same class. One is the Kiskali or ribocyclib, and one is the Fresenio or abemocyclib. Um, so in some cases, uh, switching to what I would sort of think of as a cousin drug, a drug with a similar mechanism but a different side effect profile, can be a way of still getting the benefit and getting to take advantage of the class of drugs, um, but, uh, but not having to deal with, you know, an intolerable uh, set of side effects that might have happened to come from one. Um, and then, you know, sometimes... Uh, just a whole class of drugs, no matter what you do, it's not going to agree with you, or sometimes there aren't going to be options to switch to other agents in the same class. And in that case, you know, the good news is that the list of treatment options is long, especially for women who have an estrogen-driven and a HER2-driven breast cancer. You know, those are breast cancers that we can treat both with anti-estrogen type of treatment strategies and anti-HER2 type of treatment strategies. So, you know, there's always absolutely lots of hope and lots of good options or even if something that you tried the first time didn't work you know there's there's a long list of other alternatives to explore with your um, with your treatment team but that's that's sort of how i would go down the list if one particular drug just doesn't agree with you which happens unfortunately all the time thank you so much dr Rox. and for dr grana um you mentioned it is important to get a tissue sample from the biopsy can you explain more about this it's important to get a biopsy of the recurrence. So when a woman is newly diagnosed with metastatic disease, ideally you get a biopsy of uh, not the breast, but of the distant site of spread. So whether it's bone, whether it's liver, whether it's lung, you try to get a biopsy of that tissue. The biopsy helps you confirm that you're dealing with metastatic disease, helps you repeat your estrogen, progesterone, and her 2 and then you can use a piece of that tissue from the biopsy to send out for more sophisticated testing like this NGS or next-generation sequencing. So it, it is just taking a piece of the biopsy for additional testing. But I'm a big believer in, whenever possible, biopsying distant sites. Now, are there rare exceptions where you can't? Yes, there are. I mean, there's uh, patients that are in poor health. There are areas that are very small, bony sites. Uh, sometimes we do a bone marrow biopsy in those patients. But at all costs, it's usually very beneficial to try to biopsy. Excellent. Thank you. And um, a question for Dr. Grana. You mentioned, um, oh, no, we did that. I'm sorry, we took that. We just took that question. Um, a question for Dr. Wax. Um, what is the difference between a PET scan and a CAT scan? Yeah, that's a great question. So a CAT scan um, gives you, uh, gives the patient and the doctor just information about sort of the size and the shape of their anatomy. So, you know, usually a CAT scan does involve contrast, which usually a patient will both drink some contrast and have some contrast injected into a vein um, to basically help delineate um, the different organs inside the body, the different bone structures and things like that. Um, and that is what a CAT scan is really good at doing, at giving the 
size information, the different, you know, the sort of separation between different tissues and, and things like that. Um, and usually when we do CAT scans, most commonly we're going to do them from sort of the base of the neck to the top of the thighs, um, although you can certainly get a CAT scan of anything. You can get a CAT scan of the head, get a CAT scan of the arm. Um, but often what we're most interested in looking at is uh, from the base of the neck to the top of the thighs. So that, that's what a CAT scan gives you. It gives you good sort of size information and type of tissue information. What a PET scan does, um, and a PET scan, even though we call it a PET scan, it's virtually always paired with a CAT scan as well. So it's actually like a PET CT usually. It's a combination of the two, even though sometimes we leave out actually saying the CT portion of the name. Um, and so what a PET scan, what the PET portion of the scan is doing that's different is it's actually um, a nuclear medicine type of scan where instead of just having a, what's called a contrast dye injected into the vein, the patient has a particular um, tracer injected into the vein, which is basically a radioactive sugar molecule. Um, and that radioactive sugar molecule is going to be taken up and then light up on the scan anywhere where cells are using sugar. Um, and we know that uh, cancer cells are a very common type of cell that divides quickly and uses up a lot of sugar. Um, and so cancer uh, spots can light up with a PET scan. But the marker for a PET scan is not entirely unique to cancer spots. Also, um, you know, PET scan markers can light up, for example, if there's an infection or there's a spot of inflammation, because those are also spaces where the cells are quite active. So, um, and then the, the PET scan marker information is usually overlaid on or combined with some CT scan information. Um, so what you get with the PET scan is additional information about cells that are, uh, that are active, that are usually actively dividing, which can often be cancer, but not always be cancer. So you have to be careful that you don't get fooled by PET scan results that are actually lighting up that, again, infection or inflammation or something like that. That's number one. And then number two, often but not always, the CT scan that's done alongside the PET scan um, is done to sort of help anchor and figure out where the PET scan uh, marker is, is going to, is tracing to, but isn't done in quite as high quality way as a dedicated CT scan. So you often don't get quite as much um, detail on a PET CT about the, the sizes of things or um, the specific uh, sort of types of different tissues. Uh, the CT scan is not usually not in quite as much detail when it's alongside a PET scan, but you get different information from that PET marker tracer uh, molecule about, about essentially radioactive sugar uptake and cells that are um, active. Thank you so much, Dr. Walks. And um, uh, uh, Sam, there's a question for you. Um, mm -hmm. Do you offer training support, training for support group facilitation? I'm a social worker hoping to start new groups in the future, but it has been a while since doing a group. If you could comment on that. Got it. Yeah, we do not offer training for um, support groups, but we definitely have like information on our website. Um, 
for like cancer patients in general, like stuff that do we do cover in support groups, like how to, um, like some conversations that normally do come up in support groups would be like how to talk to the medical team, how to cope, um, what to expect and things of that nature. So we do have like some publications and some information on our website that goes over some of the concerns that are topics I would say normally come up during support groups, but always to, um, Social workers call our hope line all the time to asking for feedback. So if you have like general questions, don't hesitate to give us a call too. And we can try to answer any questions or help direct you to where you need to go. Excellent. Oh, thank you. And I actually want to thank all of our speakers. They've really been phenomenal. I also want to thank all of our participants because you've all been really terrific in terms of asking such great questions. And I do kind of want to want to wrap up the call a bit um, and just say a few words to all of you about today's program. Um, you know, uh, we were not able to take all of your questions. We know that you have many more questions that you didn't get to ask. So I want to make a comment in general. First of all, for any of you who have a question, who asked a question, who have a question yet to ask, who have a question that um, you're thinking of asking, please take all of this back to your treating healthcare team. Those of you even who asked a question, bring the information that you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team because they know you the best. They know all of, they have your health records in front of them and they're able to kind of, you can take the information and share it with them and, and see what they have to say. Um, also, we don't want anyone to leave this call feeling that they're alone in coping with metastatic breast cancer. We now want you to feel you're connected to community of support and that um, a Cancer Care is here to help you. And, and I think Ms. Fortune did a wonderful job in presenting to you how to contact Cancer Care and um, also, um, all the resources that you can access from Cancer Care. In addition, when the program ends today, um, tomorrow you'll be getting a SurveyMonkey evaluation, and in that evaluation will be um, an, all the resources, including the ones at Cancer Care, and any other resource that was mentioned during the program, or even resources that we think will be helpful to you, in addition to an evaluation of the program, which of course we always appreciate your filling out. Again, I want to thank you all for your support today. And I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.